please turn to Daniel chapter 9. And as you do, I will invite Nketji to come forward for tonight's scripture reading. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over Babylon, over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame. Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God and, or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins or giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from, Ju from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to you to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is no uh, higher authority 
in the whole entire gathering of the church than when the scripture is read. So um, it was read. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn to now sit under the authority of the scriptures, I pray you give us grace, Lord. You'd give us attentive hearts that really are quick to respond to you. Um, give us that sort of interplay with you tonight to where you speak and then we, we move and then you reveal and then we, we, we just say thank you and we're changed, God. That sort of thing that, to happen in our heart tonight, do that now by the power of your spirit. Um, I just submit all of my capacities to you, God, and I ask, God, that you would, you would encourage us to love and serve Christ tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, this chapter in the book of Daniel is a pretty special one to me personally. It's a, it's a real special one in the book of Daniel. It's, uh, it's about Daniel's response to what he learned in exile. Um, we, we're at the end of Daniel's life now. He's somewhere around, I don't know, 70, 80 years old. And what we're going to find out tonight, what we're going to see tonight, is that Daniel has a different response to exile than what was being popularized in his time. We talked about exile last week. I want to commend last week's sermon to you to listen to. I don't really often say this, but I think it's important in that, that we become a creative minority in San Francisco. We talked about that last week. And it, it begins to talk a little bit about um, where we're going in the next year. So please listen to that. Two main movements we, we began last week in Israel's history as it pertains to the land were promised land and exile. And there were two ways that Israel um, lived in, in um, relation to the land. So the first is promised land, and the promised land paradigm is when Israel was freed from bondage in Egypt, they were brought through the wilderness into the promised land. And when they moved into the promised land, they became a nation with a king and a kingdom and a palace and all this stuff. And, um, and they were there, and they were the moral my, uh, majority, and they were also the dominant culture in Israel. So that was the way they lived. And last week we said, we do not live in the promised land. America is not the promised land. Um, what happened to Israel after this was exile. And, I, and we drew the parallel, we live in exile. They were brought in exile because they were unfaithful to God. And the temple was torn down and the land was decimated and they were brought into Babylon. And so the question is, how do they live now? They have to live in a different sort of way. They're not the dominant culture. They're not the moral majority. They live in exile. How are they to live? There was a few different responses to how they were to live. One of them was being popularized all around Babylon or all around the, through the exiles. And we learn about this in, Daniel, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 28. Not 29. You guys are familiar with Jeremiah 29. But in Jeremiah 28. In Jeremiah 28, a prophet tells those who were carried away to Babylon. This is what the, the, uh, a, a false prophet said to the people in Babylon. He said, hang out on the outskirts of Babylon. Live in the suburbs of Babylon and don't go into the city because in two years, God will come back and destroy Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. So the message was to them, hide. You're, you will be the moral majority again. So wait out in the suburbs until God makes you the moral majority. Now, I don't know if you know this, um, but Christianity is not the moral majority in America. Christianity is not the dominant culture in America. Um, and as a result of this, um, Christians are not that welcome to share their views or thoughts or theology or their opinions 
They're pushed kind of. Christians are pushed on the outside and not given any real credibility to be in the public square contributing to culture today. Now, because you live in San Francisco and I live in San Francisco, we feel like this has always, this has always been the case. Like, of course, we're not the moral majority. Of course, Christianity is not the dominant culture. We live in San Francisco. Um, San Francisco has never been, Christianity has not ever been that. There was, there's a, there's a blip on the, on San Francisco's history where there was someone who was in, uh, in, in office in San Francisco as a supervisor who represented family values and the Christian faith. In politics, if you didn't, if you didn't know this. But his name was Dan White, and he shot Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk, the first openly gay mayor, I mean, first openly gay official elected to public office. So Christianity has not really been a thing here. We're not, we're used to not being a moral majority in our city or in our dominant culture in our city. But a lot of our country right now is reeling from the fact that Christianity is not the moral majority anymore, and they don't know how to react some, of, some people are separating. They hide from culture. They withdraw from it, from progressives. They, they, they think that God will judge our country and we will get the power back soon enough. That's what they say. Some are fighting culture. This is, they literally call it culture wars. They dubbed it culture wars, and they're fighting against culture. And in the wake of this, a lot of us that are Christians are left confused, if not paralyzed, if, if not just even a little bit shamed of being a Christian. How do we interact with culture? And the reason why Daniel is a very relevant um, book to our post-Christian society is because he teaches us an alternative response, not one of hiding, not one of just assimilating and make Christianity some sort of privatized spirituality, um, and not fighting either. He teaches an alternative response. So what is that alternative response? Well, it's based on Jeremiah 29. It's a letter that Daniel reads and responds to in chapter 9. I don't know if you got this when we were reading through Daniel, but Daniel picks up the scriptures, he reads the scriptures, he understands the scriptures, and he responds to the scriptures. I cannot tell you how impactful Daniel 9 has been on my life as a follower of Jesus. The fact that Daniel reads the Bible responds to the Bible, has an open heart towards God through the Bible. I mean, this is, guys, Daniel 9 is like my hope for you in the year of biblical literacy. Not that you would check boxes every day, not that you would go through and go, I tore through the Old Testament, I'm like 50 chapters behind, but I caught up today. Not like, if you just read like two verses of scripture and your heart was turned to God in prayer and response, it's a win. Like, our, you, my hope for you, our hope for you as the leaders of this church was that your heart would be open to God through the Bible. There was a part that we wanted you to understand the Bible. We want you to understand. Daniel, it says that Daniel understood from the scriptures. So there is a part of understanding. But the thing with Daniel is that he used the Bible as a prayer book. He read the Bible, and we have, I mean, we can learn from this. He read the Bible and turned what he was reading into ways he was to respond to God. So he reads Jeremiah 29, and he responds to it. He reads how there's 70 years, and he counts the years. He says it's about 70 years. He reads that, that there, you're supposed to pray for the peace of the city, and so he prays for the peace of the city. He, 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 he reads that God says, I will, I will give you a future and a hope, and he believes God, and he prays into this. Daniel responds. There is intellect involved here because Daniel understood from the scriptures, but Intellectual progress led him to his knees in worship and response. 
This is, this is actually why um, we do most of our music and prayer um, and place probably the most emphasis on our Sunday gathering after the sermon. So if you're new to reality, you might notice that we do a few songs up front, and then um, we, do, we have, I mean, do some communal stuff, and then we do a teaching. And then typically, I mean, maybe you've been to church, where after the teaching, it's like, okay, hey, God bless you guys, you can leave now. But we say, like, the most important part of our Sunday gathering is right after the teaching. The climax of the Sunday gathering is not the sermon, but our response to who God is as revealed through the scriptures and by the Spirit. So it's like our responding to God. That's the, that's the thing we put the most emphasis on in our gathering. And we receive communion. A lot of us kneel in prayer. We pour out our hearts to God. We respond to God. I feel, I mean, I, I feel for you if you like listen to the teaching, you're like, eh, whatever, and then like leave and go get a burrito or something. Like, like I'm, I'm, I feel bad because I, I, like the, the, the point is to respond to God, to respond to God. And this, this actually keeps us from being connoisseurs of sermons, too. I mean, we're, I think we've become in the church connoisseurs of sermons. And to be honest, most of my sermons are not good at all. Um, it's just the worship time afterwards is good. And you walk up and you don't really know what to say. You're like, oh, the sermon was good. I know that it wasn't good. Um, <laughs> I know what happened was God did something in your heart during the second set of worship. And then you could only, like, what, what happened? Why would, oh, the sermon. Like, no, no, no. It was the Spirit of God, and it takes a lot of pressure off me because I don't have to teach good sermons. I'm like, <laughs> this, this, is, this is so important in the life of our church, guys. This is, this, is, this, is, this is everything, literally. Like, on our Sunday gathering, responding to God is everything. And Daniel, I mean, take, um, take our cue from him. I mean, he reads, and then he responds. He says, I understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. And then, and then he says, so I prayed. Then I prayed. And he does. So, how do the scriptures draw Daniel to respond? How are we to respond? There's a couple things that I'd like to share tonight on how Daniel responds to Daniel or Jeremiah chapter 29. The first is this. Daniel responds by burden and not by apathy. Daniel reads the scriptures, and I just want to, I, I want to reflect with you on the way he does this, um, and I, I hope that the Spirit stirs our hearts tonight. Daniel responds by burden. There's so much apathy in our lives. I think we kind of touched on this last week. Um, I know this because there's a lot of apathy in my life, and I'm, a, I'm like, I'm a, I do the Bible professionally, which is a dangerous thing, by the way, very dangerous thing. But I know... We, we don't, we need to cultivate burden in our heart. Daniel doesn't respond in apathy. He's not like, oh, well, it really sucks here in Babylon. It probably will continue to suck, whatever. He, he, he's stirred. Daniel's heart is broken by the state of his people and what they have done to God. He mourns the loss of what they had. Like Israel had the God-given right and call to be a light to the nations, and Daniel mourns that they're not. Daniel mourns that, that, that the people of God are not a light in the world, and he receives the judgment of God as being good. Like, you were right in judging us. You were right in sending us to Babylon because we were, we were lame. We were, we were so broken. We were so far off from your, we were not your people. We broke your commands. We were not a light to the world. God, yes, you were right, and he mourns. I mean, I, I love the way he pr- who prays like that. 
Daniel speaks to God like this. He says, we're sorry, God. I mean, who, what? If there were just one of us that was like, God, I'm, we're, I'm, we're sorry. I'm sorry. We're sorry that we've made Christianity into some political power in our nation or some voting segment. We're sorry that we have trivialized the message of Jesus down to saying some simple prayer to be in or out of heaven. We're sorry that we've been silent. We're sorry we've been consumed by apathy and trivial pursuits. We're sorry, and we mourn the loss of the voice of Christ and the hands of Christ and the feet of Christ in our city. We're sorry that we're so lame. We're lame, God. We're lame, and we're, we're sad about it. Daniel mourned, and he cried out to God, and like, God, we're... I mean, what we, we typically get angry, and then we rant on Facebook, and then we turn on Netflix, and then go to sleep. It's like that in that order. Instead of cultivating a burden in our heart, like something, we see, a, we see something, and it stirs our heart, and then we should, we should, whatever it is, if you see something, whether it's on social media or you hear about it, I, I would encourage you to stop. Just stop, turn everything off, and then cultivate that burden in your heart through prayer. Like, God, I'm just feeling really stirred right now, and I want to pray into whatever I'm feeling. Like, I'm mad at the state of the homelessness in our city, and I'm sad, and my heart breaks. God, act. God, heal. God, do something. You have to see these people. God, give me eyes. Give me, like, creative ways to solve this. Give me, give me something to say. God, give me a way to act here. Or if you see something halfway across the, the world, stop and pray. Let there be a burden for, you, for like whatever God starts to stir in your heart. This is what Daniel does. Because we're, this is what we're like meant for, guys. I mean, we're not, we're not meant to be like slaves to our companies that work forever hours just to get home and try to unwind and go to sleep and wake up to do it all over again. You were created for more than that. May God stir a burden in our hearts for this. I mean, there... I believe that there's a lot of, there are some really like thin people here. I mean, not, I'm not talking about like what you weigh. I'm talking about your, your souls. Our souls are thin. Your soul is thin. You can't talk about anything real or deep because you haven't gone there with God. You, st- you have no like weight to your soul. Like your soul, like when someone starts talking about something deep, you're like, uh, let's talk about something else. I don't really want to talk about, like you can't go there in your own heart because you haven't been there with God. Um, Lauren Hill, I've been on a huge Lauren Hill kick this week. Um, <laughs> Lauren Hill uh, said at a concert once, almost like an apology, she was speaking, uh, she was doing a concert and then she was speaking in between songs and she was offering almost like an apology because her lyrics were so heavy with confession and repentance and God and spirituality and truth. And she said this, she said, fantasy is what people want, but reality is what people need. And I just retired from the fantasy part. Come on. That is incredible. She's like, listen, all we, we go around wanting fantasy, but what we really need is reality. And the reason why these songs are so heavy and so deep, because I've just retired from the fantasy part of life. I'm living in reality now. When we do that, when we press into like, the, there's a lot of pain there. There's a lot of things that, that we as, as followers of God do not do. And you're going to feel the weight of that. You're going to see some really lame things done in the name of Jesus, and you're going to be burdened for that. And you need to lean into that. A lot of us live this apathetic fantasy, and it keeps our souls thin. We need weight. We need weight to our souls that grows from a burden for God's world 
And I don't want you to misdirect that. Don't misdirect your compassion to think that God's world is somewhere out there. God's world might just be the person right next to you. That you just need to like cultivate a burden for the person next to you. You need to cultivate a burden for your neighbor. We need to slow down. We need to slow down and cultivate a burden and anguish for the state of our own souls and the state of Jesus' church. And if we did this, I really believe that God would begin to show us the incredible things he wishes to do through us, like the insane things he wants to do through us. If we would just turn off, like sometimes turn off screens and be present with the brokenness, with, with the humanity that's all around us, that we take it in, like we've numbed ourselves. We're numb. We've not, I, think, I think like Twitter is turning into like a new smoke break where we're just like, like ah, and we just go there and without thinking, we're just like scrolling through stuff and, and it's like, it's numbing us and th- that stuff has its place. All that stuff has, your job has its place. All the stuff that you work towards has its place but we've, we take these things and we elevate them to statuses that, that they're never meant to be and it numbs us to reality. It keeps us from like seeing compassion around uh, or applying compassion or burden around us. We need to cultivate burden. We need to feel about the world what God feels about the world. And this has to be, and I, and I have to make this point, if you can write anything down, write this down. This must be cultivated. Write down, I must cultivate this. I have to cultivate this. This will not happen. A burden in your heart for like the things of God will not happen on the go as you multitask the three other things you have going on that very minute. It needs undivided attention. It needs silence. It needs vision. vision. It needs biblical language. You might need to like stir up by reading the Psalms and let that stir you into something. And most of all, it needs for us to care. I need to care. You need to start caring. Like we need to care about these things. It takes cultivation. It takes caring. Do you care? Do I care for God to move? I mean, Daniel cared. God was the only hope and Daniel knew this. God, you are our only hope. I'm not happy I'm not happy enough just like paying my bills and having a good internet connection. Like most of us like, hey, if my bills are kind of paid and I have a good internet connection, I'm good. Like we can't be satisfied with that kind of stuff. We can be. We're like, no, I need to cultivate in my heart a burden for the things of God. I think we often forget that we're in exile and we're supposed to live differently. We're supposed to live in a different response. We have to feel the the pain that that goes on around us. And Daniel's prayers are directed to God to act because he's the only one that can do something. God is the only one who can truly do something. And so look at the way Daniel prays. It's a bit daring. I love it. I want to pray like this. Sometimes I don't have the guts to pray like this. Or actually, I should say, I don't have the relationship with God to pray like this. Daniel speaks to God like he really, really knows God. Listen to what he says. Now our God... Hear the prayers and petitions of your servants. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes. Now, if I walked up to you and said, dude, open your eyes, you'd go, whoa, you don't know me that well. Like, he tells God to open, like, God, your eyes, you have to open them. Like, you have to see what's going on here. God, open your eyes. If I was standing next to Daniel, I'm like, ooh, I'm, I'm going to stand back because cause that angel's coming, but he's not coming like, I, he's coming to thump you like that. God, open your eyes. Are you kidding me? Or do you see what's going on 
in Babylon? Do you see the state of your people? Do you see the state of your temple? That is, we are your people. That's your temple. Do something. You have to do something. And so he leans on God and see the desolation of the sea that bears your name. Your name is in ruins, God. It's your name that's in ruins. We do not make, and and, okay, this is where Daniel kind of backs up. He's like, listen, I'm I'm only saying this because, not because I'm righteous. I'm just saying, I'm gonna let that out there. I'm not saying this because I'm righteous. Even though Daniel has no recorded sin in the Bible. Like, the Bible's pretty honest, right? I mean, everyone's sins recorded in the Bible. Everyone's. Like, I didn't really want that in there. It's in there, all right? Except for Daniel. Like, there's no recorded sin of Daniel in the Bible. He says, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking you this. I'm, I'm not asking you this because I'm righteous. We're not righteous. But because of your great mercy. And he appeals to God's mercy. He has no leg to stand on. He's like, listen, Everything that, that, that is said about us is true. <clears throat> we were in covenant together and we broke the covenant. So God, only thing we have to go on here is your mercy. I, <clears throat> I don't want to live a life and I don't want to get used to a life where I don't expect God to show up. I, I don't, I don't want to live that life. I don't want to live a life where I'm, I can call it in I can go like, I have my day scheduled, God, and um, I can actually get through this day without you. But if you wanted to show up, that would be cool. I don't want that relationship with God. I want a relationship with God like, God, if you don't show up, I'm like operating without a net here. I'm done. I'm like, done. You need to act, God. You need to move. At the very beginning of Daniel's life as a teenager, we learned this a few weeks ago, when he gets into Babylon, He's assigned a portion from the king's table, really good wine, really good meat, um, <clears throat> so he could become really strong. And Daniel decides to be a vegan and says, I'm going to be a vegan and get stronger. And this isn't like modern veganism, like where there's like protein like shakes made out of plant stuff. Like that's not, there was no Vitamix then. So it's not, that's not what he's talking about. He's like, I need to get stronger than the people who are eating meat. I need to live off leeks. And every single day, three times a day, every single time Daniel ate, he had to rely on God. God, as I eat this vegan meal, I need you to make me stronger than those guys. I can't do this without you. Like, he, he placed himself in a place where he was completely dependent on God. And the more that, I, the older I get, <clears throat> and I feel like I'm getting really old, but um, I, I'm realizing that I can't make things happen. See, when I was younger, I thought I had, I had way more control than I actually did. I don't have as much control as I think I do, and I really need God to show up and do what I cannot do. I can't make repentance happen. I can't drum up zeal for God in our church or in other people. I want to. I want to be that guy that can, like, get into a room and just say, like, four words, and everybody's like, God, like, I, like the Lord. I, not that guy at all. Not at all. Like, I do an altar call, and people get unsaved. I have no idea how that works. It's horrible. I'm just not that guy. And, and I, want to drum, I want to be able to drum up zeal for God. I want to be able to, like, bring about, and I just can't do it. I, I just, I know. I, I just, I don't have that, that thing. I can make people feel guilty. I'm really good at that. Um, I can create an atmosphere that feels like God is, is here, but I can't make God show up. And so whenever, when we pray, I'm like, God, you need to show up. Like, this is no joke, God. You need to show up. And I, and I want to live in that way. I want to live in that way as a church. That God, when we gather, I want to invite you. We have pre-service prayer before every gathering. Show up early to church. I mean, I know that's a really strange concept. 
Like, you put your time in, and that's it. But, like, show up early and pray. And, like, God, please come and meet us. Please come and move in our gathering. Pray for the church. Pray for churches as we prayed for beginning of the gathering. Only God can do this. Only God can change hearts and change minds and give us a burden and zeal and hope. And only thing that we can do is petition God. I can pray. I can grab onto heaven and try to shake it down, which is, I think, like the mental picture I get when I think of what Daniel's praying here. He, like, grabs onto heaven, and he tries to shake it down with reverence, though. He says, I'm not doing this because I'm righteous. He's asking, seeking, knocking. He's pounding for God to act, and he's appealing to God's mercy. He's like, don't be distant, God. I know why you were distant. We, were, we sinned. I get it. We were wrong, and you were right to be distant from us, but don't be distant. You, you need to act. You need to come closer. We're not as interested in getting back to the land as getting back to you. Get us back to you, God. Which brings us to um, our next point. Daniel responds by confession, not complacency. Daniel could have been pretty complacent. Here's why. Daniel could have had the self-righteous complacency. He had no recorded sin of himself in the Bible. It wasn't his fault he was in Babylon. He was a teenager when he was taken. It was the sins of his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers and onward. That was why they're in Babylon. And so Daniel could have just been bummed going, I didn't even do anything to deserve to be here. He didn't do that, though. He wasn't complacent. He actually confessed. Notice Daniel didn't lament and get mad on the state of Babylon. He wasn't mad at Babylon. He laments at the state of God's people. And there's a big difference. He didn't go on a rant about how bad Babylon is because Babylon is Babylon. And Babylon does what Babylon does. It always has and it always will. So he doesn't blame Babylon for being Babylon. In Revelation, Babylon comes up again as a city. I mean, in your Bibles, there's a book called Revelation. Revelation. And um, it talks about Babylon. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Babylon wasn't a thing during that time. The superpower, Babylon wasn't even a city. The superpower was Rome. And why does John, the, the revelator, the guy who writes the book of John, I mean the book of Revelation, why does he call uh, Rome Babylon? The reason why he does that is because John is saying Babylon is just the spirit of any empire, any superpower. Babylon is Rome. Babylon is Greece. Babylon is England. Babylon is America. Daniel doesn't rant about Babylon. He doesn't lament over the state of Babylon. He doesn't get mad that Babylon is Babylon. He, gets, he laments at the state of the people of God in Babylon. We, we're not to, we have to be careful when we rant about America. America is America. It's Babylon, and Babylon does what Babylon does. If you're going to rant about anything, if you're gonna get mad about anything that draws you into lament and prayer, it should be over the state of the people of God. That you'd be burdened for God's church. That you'd be burdened that we are not a light to the world the way that we should be in word and deed, in life and generosity, in holiness, in this. We, are, that's, we should lament for that. Not, oh my gosh, I can't believe America. America, Babylon, is Babylon's gonna do what Babylon does. We should lament over the state of the church. And so Daniel says like this. He says, Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. 
See, it's not enough to lament at the state of the godlessness in our city. We have to lament over the state of the godlessness in our own souls, in our own church. So we lament over our own godlessness. And look at what Daniel says. He says, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Okay, the way that this is phrased is really important. God is, is, makes a covenant with Israel, which is like, liken it to a marriage covenant. And he makes, and, and a marriage, if you've ever been to a wedding, um, they both give, they exchange vows. I have not ever done a wedding when one person makes a vow and the other person goes, that's, that's great, thank you for that. That's never happened. I've never been to one that way. I don't even know if that's a binding marriage, to be honest. Um, and so this is what Daniel's saying. He's saying, uh, we, have, we have a covenant with you, and that covenant is, is mutual. We keep, you, you make a promise to us, and we actually make a promise to you. And you keep your covenant with love to those who love you as well and keep your commandments. So there's actually, there's actually, uh, there's actually stipulations to this covenant. There's things that you said you would do, and there's things that we said we would do. And it's mutual, and it's binding. And what, what Daniel says here is that, God, you are a God of love, and we are in covenant with you. And the terms of that covenant, we know full well. Um, and, and the terms of that covenant is to love you and to keep your ways. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. What Daniel is saying is we broke the terms of the covenant. We kept breaking it over and over again, generation after generation. We deserve a divorce. We deserve a divorce. We kept breaking your covenant over and over again, and I confess that you were right in what you did when you sent us to Babylon. We really messed up. We get it. And Daniel knows that the only hope he has, the only way for recovery in this relationship between God and Israel is to come to God in repentance. And repentance involves full acknowledgement of past transgressions. It's not like, God, we'll do better next year. It says, God, this is what we've done wrong. Some of us think repentance is, is just like means trying to change your behavior moving forward. And it's some of that, but it's, it starts with confession. And all of this is relational language because Daniel is using relational language because they're in a covenant with God. Daniel is saying, we are a cheating spouse. And we know what we've done. We've done wrong. And the only hope that we have is your mercy. So would you remember? Would you remember how you vowed yourself to us and how you loved us? And that you are God who loves us? Would you remember and have mercy? Because we were saved by mercy in the first place. We didn't do anything to deserve to be married to you. We actually, on our, on our like wedding ceremony, our wedding night, we cheated on you with a golden calf. We cheated on you, and you still took us. So I'm asking you, God, have mercy again. We've known you've ha- we know you've had it before. Have it again, not because we're righteous, because you're merciful, because you're relentless in your mercy, because you keep pursuing us over and over and over again, God, according to your mercy. And God acts. God is so kind to say, yes, I receive that. And he sends Daniel a messenger, an angel. It says that the angel Gabriel showed up while he was still in prayer. This has got to be pretty cool. Um, I think I met an angel once. It was not during prayer. Oh, actually, no. 
I take that back. It was during prayer. Um, but I didn't know it was an angel. But Daniel obviously knew it was an angel. And he looks up, and he's, Gabriel's there. And Gabriel's like, hey. And Daniel's like, wow. I prayed, and I asked for God to move. And it feels like God has given me revelation. Now, notice the cycle of relationship that Daniel has with God. So, Dan, so Jeremiah's scripture is read. Daniel responds to it. Daniel reads the, like, essentially reads the scriptures. And then he responds to God's initiative in speaking to Jeremiah. And he responds to that. And then he pours out his heart to God. And then God responds and gives Daniel revelation. Do you see this interchange that happens? The scriptures, Daniel reads, responds, God gives revelation. This back and forth is what it means to be in relationship with God. This happens, guys. This, this I pray happens even tonight as we respond to God. And then God sends an angel, a revelation from God. And I believe this can happen. I believe, I believe that God can give us revelation. I believe that we can press into God and God can surprise us. God can surprise us. God can like show up and give us like, um, it's like a moment in God's presence answers a lifetime of questions. It's like you can have a trillion questions and God just shows up and you're like, I'm good. <laughs> I, I, I'm convinced. That can happen. I mean, that can honestly happen. Now, some of you guys are going, oh my gosh, that stupid Christians. Like you just have to know, just Daniel understood. Daniel's a pretty smart guy. But there's, we need transcendent revelation. You know this to be true. We, you want this to be true. I know you want it to be true. This, can, this, this happens, this can't happen. Now, but God does surprise us and God does show up. But there's a way to posture ourselves to receive God's surprise. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. In Jeremiah 29, 11, you might know this verse. It's a very popular Bible verse. Jeremiah 29, 11. Remember, Daniel read Jeremiah 29, so he would have read this part, and it says this. I know, God's speaking. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Someone say amen. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Okay, so we read that, and we're like, yes. Yes, Lord. I know the plans I have for you. You do? Plans to prosper you. Mm, that's good. Not to harm you. There we go. Plans to give you a future and a hope. This is what I'm talking about. This is like memory verse. This is everything. This is what everyone memorizes. But there's another sentence. There is another sentence after this sentence. And the sentence is, then you will call on me. Do you see that? Then you will call on me. God says, I know I have plans for you. I know what I'm doing with you. I know, I know how I'm going to prosper you. And then it says, yeah, and you're like, yes. And God says, yes, and then you will call on me. And you will come to me, and you will pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me. And guess what? You will find me when you seek after me with all of your heart. What was Daniel doing in Daniel chapter 9? Seeking after God with all of his heart. He's like, God has plans, God has like revelation, and guess where that's found? In the heart of God. Guess where I'm going? I'm going to the heart of God. I'm going to press in to God. I'm going to pray. I'm, I'm going to like orient all of, this is like a posture of, of, of God speaking, of God surprising, of God revealing himself to us. Then you will call on me. And Daniel is tenacious about his time with God. 
tenacious about it. He, um, we learned this last week, he prayed every single day for three times a day his whole life, even when it was illegal. Now you're saying, oh my gosh, how legalistic. What a boring, humdrum way to relate with God. Three times a day, boom, your like, timer goes off, your notification, a push notification, you have to go pray. That's so rigid. No, no, I'm way more spirit-led than that. Okay. All right. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad that's working out for you. Um, Daniel postured himself three times a day, tenacious about that, and inside of these times is when God revealed himself to Daniel. This was like, an, this was like, like a standing appointment with God. This is like a, a time where he stepped into and oriented his heart to God, and God spoke to him. I, look what it says in Daniel 9.21. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in an earlier vision, came to me swift in flight. That's awesome. About the time of the evening sacrifice. Very odd thing to note the time. It was right around the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, if you are like a Bible nerd, you're like, what, evening sacrifice? I thought you said the temple was destroyed. There is no temple. How is there an evening sacrifice? There wasn't an evening sacrifice. There was no temple. Daniel kept the evening sacrifice in his heart. Like that, even though the temple was torn down, he knew evening sacrifice should be going off right now. I'm going to orient my heart to God every single day for his entire life. And, it, and it, guys, it paid off. This is the only way he survived in Babylon. It was the only way he survived in running Babylon was time, like tenaciously orienting his heart to God. His heart was like set to a clock to be oriented to his mind and his heart towards God in prayer. This is what I hope for us. I hope that we move forward in like times that we go on. I'm going to be tenacious with like spending time with God and orienting my mind and my heart towards God. I'm going to wake up for something greater than I typically wake up for. I'm going to wake up to, res- to hear and respond to God. And right around the middle of my day, I'm going to like check in with God and examine my heart before God and turn my mind. And at the end of the day, I'm going to check in with God. I'm going to examine where I saw God move today and where I saw God work today. And I'm going to open my heart to God and give him my day and then turn my mind to him and meditate on him as I go, as I like start to wind down in my day. Like, I'm going to do this three times a day, and then all of a sudden, it's just going to be like fodder for burden for the things of God and, and a hunger for God, and it's going to be stoked. And then years of this, years of this, years of this, you walk around with like this tranquility of heart and mind that people, that, that if you've ever met someone like this, that just is with God all the time. And you're like, I just want to be around you, and I want to learn, I just, it's like I'm with, I'm like, when I'm with you, I feel like I'm with God. We can be those type of people. It takes a lot of nurturing. It takes a lot of cultivation. I, I believe Daniel was like that. Let me close with a story, and I'll be done. My, my friend John Tyson was here a few weeks ago opening up our series in Daniel. He's a pastor in New York City. He opened up our series when I was in London. Um, on Monday after he taught here, we didn't have a night gathering that Sunday. Um, on Monday after he taught here, I texted him and said I would love any feedback that he has about our community, any helpful critique. Uh, John is someone that I've known since like the first year of the church or year and a half of the church. It's been so helpful as he's in New York City, planted a church uh, years before we did and just learned so much from him. And I go like, is there any critique that you have? You've been with us. He sent me a voice note, which is great because he has an an Australian accent, so it sounded amazing. Um, (laughs) 
everything felt like it had more weight to it. I'm like, oh my gosh, he says water differently than me. And, um, and it feels right. And uh, he sent me a voice note. And in it, he said some, I mean, some great things about the church. But he's like, Here, here's the main thing. And he issued this like really prophetic encouragement, if not even a warning, but I think it was a really good encouragement. He said, after seven years of a fairly successful ministry in a hard place like San Francisco or New York City, you can grow a bit complacent. And you can call it in on Sundays with worship and teaching and worship again. You just go, okay, two songs, three songs, teaching, four songs. Okay, start them here, end them here, do these things. People come up like, you can just start to call it in. He says, but there's more. There's more than that. And then he said something really profound that I want to leave with you as we end. He said, Christians in places like San Francisco and New York City lived repressed lives because they have these deep pains in their hearts and burdens for their neighbors, but they can't express them anywhere. They work for bosses who, who their job is their God. And they don't call us into the office and say, how's your soul? And then we pour out our souls to them. And then they lead us in prayer. And they say, go take a walk for an hour and then, and then talk to God about that. That does not happen. What do we do when our hearts get stirred in the middle of a meeting? We have to just stuff it down and move on with our day. And we have these deep pains in our hearts and burdens for, for, for our neighbors that we can't express anywhere. And if you're working in this city and are in front of a computer all day or in a, in a hundred meetings all day, and where do you let your deep hungers and longings and pains and burdens out? Where does that go? Some of us take it out the same way others do in our city through sex, drugs, and, and drinking and entertainment. But you know, if you've done that, that doesn't even begin to scratch that itch. It doesn't even begin to scratch that itch. And he said, there's something about in the sudden day gathering in that space, not to call it in. There's something about naming and identifying the stuff we feel in our hearts and bringing that before God, like for real. Like saying, God, do you hear my burdens? Here's what I went through at work this week. Here's the things that's breaking my heart. Here's the things that are making me so angry right now. Here are the things that have me so excited I don't even know what to do with. Here are the stirrings that you have. And God, would you give me revelation? Would you speak to me? Would you heal me? And we need a place, a safe place to do real business with God. And that's, that's what this space is for. I don't want to call in Sundays. I don't want to just say, hey, we have the thing, and we know, everyone knows what to do. Everyone get in line, do the thing. I don't want that. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for our community. I want this to be a space where we're open to God, where this is not a time to be cordial and try to hold it together or to be calculated to go, okay, if I cry, I have to cry a little bit. <laughs> if, I, if I go up to pray, I have to confess just a little bit of sin, not the whole thing. I have to be really calculated in what I do. This is not the time for that. This is a time where we can be honest. We can be honest before each other, before God. This is a safe place. No one's going to judge you. If they do, they need to remove the plank out of their own eye before they try to take the speck out of yours. Like, this is a place to do real business with God. And we want God to move. And we want God to act. And we want God to hear. And we want God to open his eyes and go, God, look down on us. We're like hungry people that want you to manifest yourself, to show yourself. And then bring all the things that your kingdom brings. Bring salvation and bring healing. I mean, bring deliverance from, from demonic oppression. Bring these things.
Bring healing for, for my depression. Bring these things, God. Bring what your kingdom brings when you come. That's what we hope. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we pray that this would happen now as we turn to you in response. As we receive communion, we thank you for the body and the blood of Christ that when we go, God, remember your covenant. It says in 1 John that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the new covenant. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that in you we have life and freedom, that we can actually confess our sins to you and you can forgive us. We can confess the gap in our lives between where we are right now and what, like the vision that we have for our lives and we know we're not even close to that, but we confess that, God. I confess that. I want way more for myself, for my wife, for this church than it is and I confess that gap and I pray that you would begin by your spirit to bridge that gap, that you would make us hungry for the things that burden your heart, that you'd wake us up from our apathy, from all the trivial things, the trivial pursuits that we get involved in. Help us live for more than that. And spur us as we pour out our hearts to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.